Welcome to Life of Plenty. I'm Lisa Yurick, back in studio with Yay! Ashley Michael. I'm, it feels back. like it's it's been a while for me. It has. Been I'm a while so for excited. You. You've been under Amen. the weather, and today I'm I'm all congested. So I'll you sound speak lovely. Lust. And <laughs> we are in studio with a wonderful um, author. It's not you're not new to authoring books, but this particular book uh, is one that we just had yes. a an author event this past week. And it was scintillating. It was really good. Yes. It is, so it is, thank you for joining us, it's Mr. Well, Chris McMichael. It's Chris McMichael. That's right. And Chris uh, or Christopher? Do you have a preference? It depends on if I'm in trouble with my mom. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Today, not so much. Not so much. No. So, we'll go by Chris. Okay. And this beautiful, I need to describe it because we're holding it, yeah. one. Um, these are deeply green, you know, like the botany subject, I guess, uh, books. They're... Uh, a deep green with beautiful embossed gold um, lettering. It says Redemptive Botany of the Bible. And it's seven, how many pages? Uh, 828 yeah. total, but about 130 of that are the indices. It is no small book. It is no, no small book. And it fits into this beautiful case. It is just done. And it has illustrations oh, and it, it has the marbled yeah. in papers. And it is a really special. It's beautiful. You know, we talk a lot <clears throat> about gifting books and the power of gifting books as as passable treasures and as as these things and you've really created something special. Thank you. That uh, was our endeavor. I I have a background in art as well and I am an avid reader and there's just something about to me Victorian books and I wanted to not just write a book but I wanted it to be a work of art from start to finish. I wanted it to be a book that people couldn't wait to get home and pick up again and be just as fascinated to touch it or to mm-hmm. look at it or just excited to flip through it to see what the next engraving looked like. We did. I put a lot of effort into replicating Victorian book art and styling because I felt like it was the best um, format for this subject. Well, it, it's absolutely beautiful choice. And you had some wonderful things to say the other night that I want to ask about. And it's true. We we talk about on this program how holding a physical book has the power, we can see it in MRI imaging, to light up our whole brains. You know, our whole mind lights up because of the physical and the sensory experience that we're having and the way you can dive in. So you've you've really created a very special experience and, and we appreciate that. You talked about the Victorian you you also have a background, you're a pastor. Yes ma'am. Um uh, for a, quite a while now. You've been a Yes ma'am. We just celebrated sixteen years of yeah. full time pastoring. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you, ma'am. Yeah. And um a pastor who is busy with a family and then took on this three year voyage <laughs> of writing an 800-page book yes, about botany and going in. And you've really created a groundbreaking work, a, a work that doesn't exist elsewhere. And, uh, you know, we, we, we hear that a prophet knoweth not honor in his own country. Uh, we hope that's not true. We hope that even being a local, people will see the value of this, uh, you know, to the world and um, and talk about it. So let's talk about redemptive, redemptive botany of the Bible. So what was your focus as you as you created this? Um, so I, I have written other books, and I, I do want to say, starting off, I, in college, hated writing. And then eight years after college, God called me to Bible school. I had to write a paper. I cried. I, I physically <laughs> no. cried with fear and disdain. And I even wept and said, Lord, I don't like writing. It's why I went into science. My, my degrees in geology, I was a geologist for 10 years. 
And I said, Lord, I don't want to, I don't want to write, but if, if that's what I'm called to do, I'll write this mm. dumb five page paper on eschatology. And, uh, so I never thought I would write. And then anyway, long story short, started writing little books and they got bigger. And I really found that I enjoyed writing and, um, there seemed to be a great grace for it. And with my scientific background, and a culmination of studying the plants of the Bible since about 2001. Halfway through COVID, I had finished one book, and I thought, what will be my next tackle, my next project to tackle? Because there wasn't a lot to do during COVID. I do a lot of missionary work, wasn't doing any of that. So I thought, well, let me culminate or let me compile all my notes on the Bible plants I've studied, and we'll just kind of put a little compendium like together. Too. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's 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 you know, there's that scripture that says he plants the de- he he gives you the desire of your heart, and that word give means to plant. Yeah. And this is a uniquely planted desire. In your heart, in a literal yes, kind of way. But we, I, <laughs> start, I started doing it, and I thought, well, let's do a little bit more research. And before long, it became I, – I, I honestly thought I could do do the book in 300 pages, and okay. I could do it in a year. But it, it did not become that. It is what it is. It is a very scientific uh, work. It's a very academic work. We have over 340 or 350 citations And I was in communication with uh, professors and experts all over the world, mostly in the Mediterranean, because that's where the plants of the Bible are, but um, had a lot of help from academics who were more than eager to respond to an email or take a phone call, had several of them review chapters that they contributed to. And that was a tremendous honor that uh, an academic in Italy or Jerusalem or England or Jordan would take a look at something I'd written and give me their their input. I have have become friends with one professor in Denmark who was the former plant director, which is kind of like oh, the secretary wow. of agriculture for Denmark. He reviewed the whole book. He's a believer. He's a double PhD. He has actually written a book called Plants of the Bible, and he has reviewed every chapter to give me input, to give me some critiques, oh, to give me some correction. Um, and I and I want to say out, outright, I'm not a botanist, though I maybe I qualify as a little bit of one now, but I think it is ironic with my background being geology and a, a very illustrative career in geology that then the Lord uses me to mm-hmm. write this book mm-hmm. on plants. Geology so. and plants connected. And and you've put thousands of hours into yes, your understanding. So what does it take to become an expert, really? I mean, Fair enough. You know, thousands of hours and, and, and giving yourself your own curriculum of the world's experts and and – how beautiful! It's a really exciting, um, it's exciting book to, to delve into. And you were asked, you were you were recounting um, that you had a French colleague that was questioning you, like, why would you write a book on sure you know, on the Bible? So one of like. my kind of mentors in uh, in ministry is a, a French missionary. He's from France. He's a U.S. citizen now, but he he's a missionary to French speaking countries of the world, and he always gives me a hard time. I think because he's French. And he, but he loves my my other yeah, my other works, and so we were talking about this. We hadn't published it yet, but he, you know, when you're working on something for three years, anytime you check up on each other, what are you doing? Well, I'm right. working on the botany book. Still, still, what are you working on? Botany book. Still, still. <laughs> so finally, we got it sent off to the publishers or to the press company, and he said, "I just have to ask you, uh, you write good stuff," which was a compliment. But he said, "Number one, why would you write?" A book about plants, and number right. two, why would it? Why would you spend three years and make it this long? And so I, he was kind of jabbing at me, and uh, me being the American and him being French, I wanted to jab back pretty hard. <laughs> so I kind of rolled around in my heart everything we'd researched and written. I thought, Lord, what what could I give him to explain to him 
the purpose of this, why this needed to be done. And so I, I came up with the discussion of the oud wood. So tell us about the oud wood. Okay. Go ahead cool. and tell us what you told him. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Because it's a great story. So we cover oud wood in our chapter on spices. And so as Westerners, we think of spices as something that McCormick makes and you yeah. has, has the red right. lid and you put it in your stew. But under the biblical concept, a spice is anything that would burn or be aromatic. And uh, a long discussion on that in the book. But one of the spices we cover, actually the last spice we cover, is what's modernly called, or in the modern times called oudwood. The scientific term is aquilaria, the aquilaria tree. What the King James refers to as aloes. One of the reasons this, this book that I've written is necessary is because the, the King James is probably the most prolific, wide, widely influential Bible translation there is. And unfortunately for all their efforts and endeavors in translating it, 1611, authorized King James, science was really just coming into its own in that era. Mm-hmm. Botany was a fledgling science. And so they, the translators of the King James, are sitting in merry old England in the rainy castles of the day, looking at words they don't really know, Yeah, trying to describe plants they've never seen. And so they, they're looking at these words, so they translate it as aloes, which was something they're familiar with. But when you and I hear aloes, we instantly think of aloe vera, right. mm-hmm. which is a strictly American plant. It's North American, Central America. It's not a Mediterranean or Eurasian plant. So we, I always translate it, you know, they, they marinated or not marinated, they, they uh, embalmed the Lord with aloes. And I thought, well, why would you do that? Was he sunburned? <laughs> but in studying it and researching it, it's understood that the plant they're discussing is a plant called the aquilaria tree, which is native exclusively to Southeast Asia. It's a hardwood. It's a very tall tree. And it is actually absolutely good for nothing um, as, a, as a tree. It's just, it's nondescript. It's, it's just a tree. Nothing mm. really significant about it, except if it is damaged, it will produce a resin. And that resin it creates what is then called oud wood or, or aloes. It's also called eagle wood. It has a lot of different names. Auger wood is another common term for it. But this resin... Um, resins are secondary metabolites in plants and trees. That means they're not necessary for day-to-day existence. Like sap is a primary metabolite. Sap is what runs up and up, uh, up and down the cambium, which takes the nutrients from photosynthesis down to the roots. The roots can keep growing and vice versa. Sap is always in existence, but resin is created on demand, which is a very complex issue that they're huh. still trying to solve. Because the question is, it's created on site wherever a damage Occurs. So if there's a puncture there, if there's in the a tree. Puncture, the tree doesn't create resin <clears throat> far away. The tree creates resin on site. So the question becomes for the human, how does the cell know it's been damaged? How do localized cell know? Which is an interesting question they're still working on. All trees that produce resin only produce resin sufficiently to clot like a blood, like a blood clot as a scab to protect the tree from any more invasion. The aquilaria tree, which there are several subspecies to it as well, the aquilaria tree produces resin from the innermost wound. So if you were to spike it, if lightning were to strike it, if bugs were to bore into it, the resin would begin its production at the innermost point of the wound and then work its way out. So if you were to take a, you can pull this up on Google, just Google search aquilaria wood or oud wood, oud wood samples, you would see that it will turn the wood black or really very dark. So it's a heartwood. And so it grows from the inside out. That is what makes the oud wood or the aquilaria tree special because it produces a resin, the only that they know of, that heals the tree 
from the inside out. Whether the tree is attacked by fungus, bacteria, lightning strikes, spike, termites, animals, etc., it heals itself from the inside out. The other wonderful thing that makes this so valuable is that the aroma, and the aroma is exotic. It, it it's a combination of vanilla. It's very earthy. Um, some of it even smells like rosewood. I've I've purchased a lot of it out of the markets of Arabia and uh, Vietnam. Uh, it's what was used to embalm the Lord Jesus. The Bible says that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two very wealthy men, they, they asked for the Lord's body and they took him and they embalmed him in myrrh, which is a bitter mm-hmm. resin out of camaphora uh, trees, and then aloes wood. And so there's a lot of symbolism tied to it. People speculate, you know, the bitterness of death, the, the aloes of its, its wealth. And uh, I personally believe that it's, it's the aloes wood because of Christ's ability to heal the believer from the inside out. Today, the Oudwood market is still in existence, and Oudwood uh, goes for $100,000 a kilogram. Oh, my goodness. $100,000 $100, a kilogram. $100,000 a kilogram. If you want, you could pull it up on Etsy because <laughs> yeah. it's for sale on Etsy. Wow. And just search Oudwood or Augerwood, A-G-A-R. The most expensive and perfume. I have, yeah. a, I have a screen capture of like a, a 50-gram piece for about $18,000, and the sole purpose is to burn it. As incense. That's wild. So it's an incense wood. It's it's a spice wood. So then the uh, the essential oil goes for about eighty five thousand a liter, and then that's what's used to create the very expensive colognes and perfumes that typically are go for about four or five hundred dollars an ounce. Of course, it's only one of many ingredients. And if if you were to smell it, you would say, "I know this smell," because it's very prolific. Mm-hmm. You'd say, "That's aquilary. That's oud wood. That's auger. That's what they embalm Christ with." That's what they embalm Christ with. So the other cool thing, the, the symbolism or the typology of it is that in, an, in a, a natural aquilaria forest, only about 7 to 10% of the trees will be found to have oud wood in it because it only produces it when it's been attacked. So one of the conservation issues is because this wood is so expensive, they'll go clear-cut whole sections of forest at a 10% strike. Right. And... Unfortunately, so you're clear-cutting trees that will never have an opportunity. Well, there were some professors out of Minnesota who actually developed a technique. They figured out how to cultivate it. I was in connection with him, and he was very helpful and answered some questions for me. He patented it. Um, so they now are able to cultivate it as a renewable resource where they can spike the trees mm. on farms and create in a sense, synthesized oud wood. It's not synthesized. The tree is doing its thing, but we're forcing the tree to right. do its thing. So instead of a 10% oud wood rate, now you have 100%. The problem is because capitalism is what it is, now you have a division between the cultivated and the natural. Mm-hmm. So the natural becomes even more expensive and the cultivated brings the price down lower, which hmm. honestly is fine uh, because if, if you just want to burn it, you can buy right. the cheaper stuff. I've never bought the really authentic, expensive, expensive stuff. So you couldn't say if there's really a... A difference? <laughs> well, so the Chinese uh, and all the Chinese uh, herbals from back in the day, they talk about floating uh, oud wood and sinking or chicken, chicken oud wood because of the color and it floats and then sinking oud wood because it's so dense with resin, it sinks to mm. the bottom. Mm-hmm. That was what was more valuable because, of course, it's a greater density of the resin. Mm-hmm. And again... All anybody wants it for is to burn it. Well, but when you think of the connection with this special wood and the idea, the connection to Christ and the connection to the embalming and the idea that that a, a, a unique tree, when pierced, produces a resin that is so aromatic 
and so very special yeah. and, and actually has a healing power yeah. to the tree. I mean, it just, how did your friend re, re well, so, yeah, so his name mentor. is, is uh, Jean-Paul. Uh, it, when I, I said, so th- this is symbolic. I said, Jean-Paul, this is symbolic of what the Lord is able to do to those that receive him. He heals us from the inside out. And now we produce this sweet smelling aroma of thanksgiving and praise that we would not have had he never healed us. And so with that, this this late 70-year-old Frenchman, French missionary, been all over the world, he began to cry, and he had to turn his head away, almost maybe in French pride. I don't know. <laughs> Love, lovely man. I love him dearly. And, and he turned back at me, and he nodded. And he said, I get it. I understand why you had to do this. Yeah. So the, the research that has been done, I've, I've just built upon the research of other of true botanists, PhDs, academics before me. What has never been done is tie that to the theology. Mm-hmm. What's never been done is to take the botany and the phytology of its understanding and then use that to help interpret all these plants' use in symbolism and allegories and prophecy and eschatology and in judgment. Because if, if we understand the botany, as they surely did, being people of the earth and being people that are agrarian, um, we can understand the interpretation of these parables that are now more clearly. We understand what the Lord meant when he said wheat and tares. We understand what the Lord meant when he says, I will shake Jerusalem as the olive tree at harvest. Uh, we understand uh, the, the implication of a lot of these. Uh, there's a really obscure prophecy about Christ that basically says he is a baby cedar tree that will be cut from the top and planted in Mount Zion. I never knew there was a prophecy that equated Jesus to a, a baby a cedar cedar tree. Okay. So what does me, that mean? Oh, <laughs> so uh, the cedar tree, uh, this, uh, this is going to hurt a lot of listeners. We don't have cedar trees in Tennessee. Okay. We have Virginia junipers. We okay. call them cedar trees. We even have our state park, Cedars of Lebanon. Mm-hmm. But true cedar trees, cedar, uh, cedars Lebanon, which is a Latin scientific term, true cedar trees are conifers. They produce cones. Our juniper trees, our cedar trees produce berries. So juniper trees are berry producers. That's how they reproduce. Right. And that's one of the distinctions. Though you do cut open a juniper tree, it's a, we call it a red cedar, and it has the aromatic cedar oil. Uh, but the cedars of Lebanon were called the ancient or the majestic trees of the ancient world. They are, they are one, one botanist from the 18th century called them... Uh, to the forest, what the lion is to the jungle. They they were majestic. Mm-hmm. Only kings could harvest them because they were massive. They grow to be 100, 150 feet tall. They were. The, you have a picture in here that shows. Yes, they, ma'am. They are huge. They are massive. Very wide around too. They are. Uh, the cedar tree is one of my favorite. It's like my celebrity. Uh, this uh, back in October, we were in D.C. taking a tour of the Capitol. And the largest cedar tree in North America is at Mount Vernon. It planted outside George Washington's tomb. So I got to see it, and that was probably the highlight of the whole trip. We got to tour the White House, and I was more excited to see (laughs) the the tree in George's backyard. (laughs) It was pollinating, which was really cool to be able to see the uh, the male cone pollinate. Anyway, so the cedar tree, they flourish in Mount Hermon in the sides of the north, in Lebanon on uh, limestone ground. They, They thrive on rocky ground. They, it's almost like the rockier the soil, the more they flourish. And wow. they're able to grow majestic and massive. Of course, its claim to fame is it's what Solomon built his temple out of. Mm-hmm. Um, and the wood was stockpiled for decades before Solomon got to working on it. And then after he built his temple, he then built his, his palaces and for that of his Egyptian wife. So it became the – Solomon set the precedent for the kings that followed that everybody after that wanted cedar trees. Um, 
so there's a lot of symbolism, and it's used allegorically in uh, Ezekiel quite a bit. But there's judgments against Israel, who at that point had been so enamored with cedar tree, they were trying to import all this cedar from Lebanon to boast their wealth. So at that point, the Lord refers to Israel as Lebanon, kind of mockingly, like, you want to be something you're not. You know, these aren't your trees, but you've embraced them. So the Lord says, don't worry, I'm going to burn all your cedar trees. I will destroy this house. And he did. But in that true to form, anytime the Lord brings a judgment, it always follows up with redemption. So while he's judging the cedar tree and causing or calling Israel into captivity that will happen in Babylon, he says, and yet there will be a, a, a tip of the cedar tree will be taken and will be planted in Mount Zion, a savior. And so we know that to be a the, the Lord Jesus wow. principalized just, as a cedar tree, the king of trees, as it's called, the king of trees. I Okay, so I have to know, you you don't call yourself a botanist, but clearly you do know an awful lot about it. Um, are there things that you have read earlier in your life that somehow sparked an interest in in any, I mean, how did you get from point A to point B and have any particular books made and helped you to get there? Before I was researching this, I was an avid reader for pleasure. And so when you research... <laughs> you had all that this, time. <laughs> yes. So I spent three years pulling research papers, chasing historicity, reading stuff back into the 3rd and 4th century BC, Galen the Pergamon, Pliny the Elder, Theophrastus, going through Greek philosophy and, and, and uh, Greek mythology and etc. These are things you read for pleasure. No, well, <laughs> now yes, these are things I read researching this. Uh, so prior to that, my reading habits have always been history. I've always had a strong draw towards uh, survival stories like The Indomitable Human Spirit, one of my most favorite books of all time, and I can't remember the author, and, and you'll have to forgive me, is a, is a German book called As Far As My Feet Will Carry Me, made into several movies in Germany. Sounds it's familiar. a true story of a German POW at the end of World War II. He was captured behind Russian lines and taken off to the gulags. And he spends nine years in a lead mine, basically almost wow. into Alaska, and he misses his wife. It's a true story. And after nine years, I mean, we're, we're talking like we're in the early 1950s. Right. He escapes. Goodness. And walks back oh, wow. to Germany. Basically, he gets as far as um, um, oh, one of the Russian states. But he spends two or three years walking across Siberia. And that's why it's called oh, As Far goodness. As My Feet Will Carry Me. And it is a story about just not quitting. Mm. These are stories that that just drive me because we, we're, we're capable of way more <laughs> than we realize. And it, this man just wanted to get back and see his wife. And wow. that's what kept him alive. People were dying of lead poisoning because the, the Russians kept them in lead mines. That's where they live. So they're constantly being exposed to the lead. They're being forced to mine. Their gums are bleeding. They're dying. And he escapes. He spends a year or two with reindeer herders, Inuit people. Wow. Um, even when, when in writing the book, he said, more things happen that I have not documented because this story is already too unbelievable. Mm. I read the book. Truth get, is stranger than fiction it a is. lot of times. I got to the end and I sobbed uncontrollably. Oh, Obviously, he wow. lives to write okay. the book. <laughs> I sobbed because of, of how it ends. And, yeah. And you just with them every step oh, of the way. Oh, my goodness. So these are the kind of stories... I was really drawn to a lot of the Navy SEAL books that came out of the Afghanistan conflict mm -hmm. and Iraq. Probably have read eight or nine of those, again, because of the indomitable human, human spirit. spirit. One of my favorites is, um, oh, the name, oh, as far as, uh, not as far, um, Up From Slavery. Yeah. 
Because yeah. again, the indomitable human spirit. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, we have one minute. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and and so much more to cover. And I, I wanted to make sure we give you a chance to uh, to to. We were having so Synthesize. much fun talking I know. about books. <laughs> so much fun. Wait, I, I'd love to have you back and love to talk more sure. about your books. I'd be honored to. Um, obviously, people can get your book, which you, you've started a press. Yes, ma'am. And have done uh, wonderful work in independent press and, and creating beautiful books. And this book is available at Plenty, uh, mm-hmm. the, the downtown bookshop, uh, uh, nonprofit shop, and, and you're supporting this kind of work. And uh, we had a lovely talk with you. What... What do you want to leave us with about this book as we as we dive into it? Uh, in, a, in a nutshell, that all creation truly declares the wonder of God, mm-hmm. that his fingerprint is upon everything, that everything is created is so infinitely complex. We're still trying to study it and understand it to this day, that now we're into microbiology, molecular biology. We're, we haven't just split the atom. Now we're trying to we're splitting the cell to understand how does all this even work? And so there is even the plants declare the glory of God. That's so cool. Redemptive botany. Chris McMichael, thank you so much for being here and for taking this book on. And, My pleasure. Uh, contribution. It's an honor. Ashley, thank you. And thank you for enhancing our life of plenty.